This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. If you got the vaccine cards, you know, the little paper they give you after getting the shots, it might be your key to a basketball or hockey game in New York, Madison Square Garden, announcing that proof of full vaccination required to go to Nixon Rangers games. So it's just, just the start of the passports here in the U.S. A fourth vaccine could be ready to roll out across the U.S. pretty soon. Johnson & Johnson been called a game changer. Why isn't it out there changing the game? And will Republican men gum up the whole herd immunity effort? Illinois found a creative way to help businesses increase capacity while not technically violating any rules. And stores have made big changes during the pandemic. We'll explore what changes could stick around for a good time. We start with Madison Square Garden. The proof of vaccinations, Dr. Arthur Kaplan, founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's School of Medicine. So, doctor... You think this is going to be the start of something big? Uh, you'd be right. Let me be clear. I am not a Knicks fan, so I have no dog in this fight. I'm a Sixers <laughs> fan, even though I'm out here. But um, It's so noted, by the way. So noted. Anyway, somebody must want to go watch the Knicks. I don't know who they are, but somebody <laughs> might. Anyway, <clears throat> it is absolutely certain, I think I predicted this, that many businesses, sports, airlines, hotels, cruise ships are going to start to say, you can come in. You can do this as long as you show proof of vaccination. The more we have vaccines out there, the wider availability becomes. And I think probably by mid-May, we'll have enough for everybody who's willing to take one. A lot of private businesses are going to say it's safe to come back. I can't imagine the same thing won't be happening for Broadway shows. You know, you sit next to one another in these New York theaters, ventilation stinks. I think people will be nervous about going in there, but if they know everybody's been vaccinated, different story. And especially if they can pull off this pilot program that they're doing at the garden, right? Because if it is some kind of service or app that I'm using, and if I can stick this on my phone, because it, it's probably not the paper card, you just have to prove some way that you got the vaccine, hook it up to your health system or whatever it is. If I'm carrying around this in my Apple wallets, then it's easy for me to show the guy at the door. Exactly. And you know, people are wondering and some object some conservatives object and say, well, I don't want the government to know where I've been. This is not tracking you. This is just your vaccine status. The private sector is already gearing up. Many companies, IT companies in Silicon Valley will do the vaccine certification. We'll make sure that it tells the date you got it and so on. So I think those worried about government issued vaccine authentication I expect this to be more of a private thing and maybe a little bit unfair because you're going to have to pay for it. Well, also, how would it practically work? For example, uh, I mean, if you had to sort of take transfer from the uh, cardboard cards that everybody is getting to some app, uh, you know, every step of the way, it just leads itself open to everything from hacking to counterfeiting. Well, that's usually a problem, especially with the apps that we envision coming here, but I think what you'll have is certification that the card was issued by a hospital or a doctor. That's pretty easy. It's in their records. The private companies will go chase that down. They'll put some kind of watermark on the app or some sort of, uh, you know, uh, the usual firewall to stop it from being hacked, and they'll offer that protection. I also think you're going to see the U.S. government eventually pushed to issue vaccine passports for international travel. I can't imagine some countries aren't gonna say, you're not coming in here unless you've been vaccinated. So that'll be its own paperwork 
you know, application and filing. But whether you like it or not, it's coming. Arthur Kaplan, founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics, NYU's School of Medicine. More paperwork. AstraZeneca released the results of its U.S. vaccine trials. It found the vaccine is almost 80 percent effective at preventing COVID symptoms, but 100 percent at preventing severe ones. Of course, this has been the vaccine with a concern in Europe over blood clots. There was a pause for a while. Dr. Jonathan Kimmelman, bioethicist, director of the Division of Ethics and Policy at McGill University, studies clinical drug trials. So, doctor, uh, these results, they seem pretty good. Yeah, this is great news. It's great news for Astra. It's great news for uh, for tackling this pandemic. It's a very highly effective vaccine. And... Uh, you know, it, uh, it affirms that uh, this ought to be probably, you know, at least this evidence suggests that this vaccine ought to be considered along with uh, the other vaccines that are approved. Now, I, I've already heard people pose the question, well, but since it already had this kind of tainted, and I'm putting the word tainted, by the way, in, in, in quotes, background, given a, a choice, why would we get the Astra shot? But I'm going to ask you the other question, which is, because this shot is, as I understand it, cheaper to produce, easier to transport, and easier to keep, why would somebody not opt for it as opposed to the others? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Look, there's a lot we don't know yet about these vaccines. They, all other vaccines that have been approved or the ones that are being considered up here in Canada, the Astra one's been, been approved, they all are highly, highly effective. There's still a lot we don't know about uh, how protective they are for some of the different variants. And we don't yet know about rare adverse events that might happen. You would need a massive number of patients to be exposed to any of these vaccines to get really, really good numbers on the safety. So it's really sort of hard to kind of parse out, uh, you know, which are advantageous or which are disadvantageous for individual patients. Uh, so, you know, what I would generally say is that, uh, you know, uh, there, there's not really any good reason to have a preference from a pa patient standpoint uh, for one vaccine versus the other. The easiest way to talk about, you know, adverse effects, the rare ones, is that population argument. A certain number of people, right, are going to have things happen to them because things happen to them every day. So maybe you would have developed a blood clot situation anyways. And if it's a one in a million thing, and I'm just pulling that number out of the air, well, that was going to happen. It's not necessarily the vaccine's fault. Correct. So, yeah, bad things happen to people all the time. And, you know, with these clinical trials, you need a massive number of patients or healthy volunteers to be able to detect that signal of safety events happening for the vaccine up and above the noise of safety events happening to people who don't take the vaccine. So, you know, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who have to be get exposure. So when you see a bunch of adverse events or safety issues come up in these trials, it's incredibly difficult to know what the exact cause is. From what I've read from the press releases and the coverage of this, there really isn't any good statistical grounds for thinking that these uh, clotting issues are attributable to the vaccine itself. So now that we know for a fact that all of these vaccines now available work, uh, is it time to do a trial that does compare one vaccine against another? Is there a need for that? You know, I think it would be a good idea to do head-to-head -head trials. One of the big challenges, uh, you know, unlike most other diseases we deal with, uh, this is an evolving uh, pandemic. The variants, some variants are going to be more prevalent in some 
places than others. And so vaccines, you know, that might be highly effective now, might be less effective later. Uh, so I think it's, you know, there's, there's a lot that we don't know in terms of this vaccine and how useful they're going to be for certain aspects of the pandemic. Running head-to-head trials would be a great way to try to uh, resolve some of those questions. Dr. Jonathan Kimmelman, Division of Ethics and Policy at McGill University. Thanks. The uh, single-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it has been out for weeks now. Some medical experts call it a game-changer because only one shot is needed and because it's easier to store. We have not been flooded with doses, though. So what's going on? Dr. Marcus Plesha, Chief Medical Officer at the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. So, Doctor, um, did we just think there would be more? Were we too hopeful? Were we promised more and they didn't deliver? Where are the shots? Well, they're beginning to get out to states, but they haven't moved in quite as quickly as everybody was hoping for. Why aren't they moving in quite as quickly as everybody was hoping for? Do we know why? We don't. I mean, we understand that the manufacturer has, uh, you know, had some challenges kind of scaling up the manufacturing, getting the doses out. Our understanding is that that should really start to pick up in April. Um, but right now, states got a initial installation of some doses and then really haven't gotten a whole lot more. And, and we've not gotten a real clear sense of what to expect. I mean, did Johnson Johnson just initially either either overpromise or just overestimated its ability to deliver X number of doses in X amount of time? Because after all, they, they were basically uh, had their arm twisted to go into business with Merck to help them produce their own vaccine? Well, maybe both of those things. But, you know, in in fairness, maybe we've gotten a little spoiled here. I mean, it's amazing that we are where we are with with any vaccines. And, you know, things are definitely picking up with Pfizer and Moderna. And I I really think that the Johnson & Johnson will start to kick in in April. And, you know, yeah, we're all waiting for it because it's such a great vaccine and that it's only one dose. Yeah, I I think... You know, whatever, it was a couple of minutes ago, I said, well, were we all not listening? There were some places, to their credit, that did give some warning, and they were transparent. I mean, L.A. County, kudos to them, was one of them. Barbara Ferrer here was up there saying not too long ago, uh, yes, we're going to get our first shipment of J&J, and it's going to be great for about a week. And yeah. then it's not going to be around, guys. So if you're going to Dodger Stadium to get this one, you got to get it this week because I'll see you in April, basically. And things get bumpy when you roll something out, right? I mean, if we're all looking for this May 1st, everybody's on the list because that's what the president wants, then the J&J arrival in April is is probably going to get us there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we we have been lucky. You know, we, we always try to anticipate that there may be unexpected problems with manufacturing, uh, you know, and we're in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, we've seen we've seen other settings where manufacturing has shut down because there's been outbreaks of the infection in that workforce. So I, I think we've been very lucky. And, you know, frankly, I, you know, I think we're <laughs> we're asking the public to be patient with us. And, and, you know, at the same time, we're trying to be patient with the manufacturers. But but I actually think that that you've pinpointed the, the real problem, because it's the problem, not just with expectations with vaccines. It's been the problem all along with the way many Americans have dealt with this pandemic, right? Uh, We were okay with wearing masks, but only for a short amount of time. We were okay with social distancing and having some businesses closed, but only for a short amount of time. Vaccines, well, we 
you know, we locked down last March. We should have had the vaccines four weeks later. Uh, we're very impatient, aren't we? We are. And I mean, we do need to keep doing those first two things you mentioned, masks and social distancing. And then, I mean, at some point we need to step back. We are exceptionally fortunate to have these vaccines. Now, I, if you'd asked me last March, I would have said I would not have predicted that we would have not just one vaccine, but three effective vaccines at this point. We really thought it was going to take longer. We've never developed a vaccine for um for this particular type of virus. Sure, we've done flu vaccines, we, we have that down, but this is very different. So, you know, although I understand people being impatient, there's finally a light at the end of the tunnel. Let's just step back and take stock of the fact that this is pretty extraordinary and, and it's, it's, it's exceptional. It's exceptional that we as a society and we as human beings are able to pull this off. Dr. Marcus Plesher, Chief Medical Officer, Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. Men might be to blame if we can't reach herd immunity in the U.S., specifically Republican men. A new poll by Marist College found about half of Republican men say they won't be vaccinated, and it seems almost all of them are white men. It's a lot of people. Can they be persuaded? Lonhee Chen, Director of Domestic Policy Studies, Stanford's Hoover Institution. Lonhee, why don't white Republican men want to get their vaccines? It's a great question. So I think it's the combination of, of several different factors. One is a is a general uh, feeling about how the pandemic has gone. And, and the notion, I would say, that the pandemic uh, hasn't been uh, what the media, let's say, has, has said it has been. And, and I think it's a point of view that started very early on in the pandemic. It's a view that's been very skeptical of public health interventions, whether social distancing, mask wearing, um, and, and I think that's extended, unfortunately, to some hesitancy or skepticism about vac vaccines and how effective they, they can be. So some of it is, uh, I would say, related to the pandemic more broadly, and some of it is, is related to kind of where we are in terms of the recovery now, with many states opening up, uh, many states having considerably better numbers when it comes to uh, uh, data around who has COVID and who doesn't. Uh, that skepticism, I think, unfortunately, has only extended. It's interesting when you when you dial it down to that way, right? Because it's not all just like anti-vax sentiments or even going yeah. that far. There's there's a whole other sector. And I think maybe if we think about who we know and who we talk to, you know, if you if you jump in other circles that, that you don't usually swim in and, and hopefully we all do. Um, but there are people who will go, I don't I don't think I need it. Like maybe I'm 40 or 50 something and I had COVID and I made it through and now things look fine ish. We have to wear masks, but hey, I don't need this shot. I, I beat it the first time. Yeah, I think that's a sentiment that that you hear quite often in those who are expressing hesitancy or doubt about getting the vaccine. And I think you have a very good observation there that it's not your traditional anti-vax group of people. I, I mean, there might be some overlap. I don't want to overstate the point, but I do think that there is a separate set of factors driving the consideration of specifically the COVID vaccine. And again, it goes back to how polarized our, our political and public discussion has become, that there's even such fundamental disagreement over you know, what has been a, a really difficult pandemic for a lot of people throughout the country. How much, if at all, do you think this is based on uh, a degree of racism, too, that, that white Republican conservatives, they're looking at the figures and they're saying, well, you know, uh, the black community, the Latino community, very hard hit 
by COVID, uh, relatively not as much for the white community. So they sit back and they go, therefore, we're not in danger. I, I don't know if it's that direct. I mean, I would say in some parts of the country, the lower income whites are the ones that have been hit hardest by, by COVID and are the ones that have seen uh, some really bad health outcomes as a result. So I, I think in California, the conversation you know may be a little different than in other places. But I do think it comes back above all to people's experience with the pandemic, to what they've seen with the pandemic and their perspective and point of view about what it's going to take for us to end this pandemic. And and look, if if in your heart of hearts, you're one of these people who doesn't believe that the pandemic was ever that serious, then you can understand a little bit better why it is that there is an extension to not wanting to get the COVID vaccine. Do you still, all this being said, have a sneaking suspicion that at least there is a portion of this crowd that will eventually get it because, you know, their wives get it or their golfing buddies get it? And then on all the neighbors have it and they're all going to dinner. OK, fine, I'll get my shot. Yeah, I think that's entirely possible. I think particularly with the with the rollout of a one shot uh, formulation, the Johnson and Johnson and, and Janssen uh, shot, which is, of course, just one dose and still proves to be, be efficacious in the ways we want it to be, which is against uh, severe cases of COVID-19 as well as against hospitalization. Uh, you, you know, my guess is the easier it gets to get a vaccine, the easier it gets to have access to to that treatment, I think you'll you'll find more and more people get it, just the natural momentum of it. But uh, it, it's not going to be everybody, right? I mean, there still is going to be some percentage of the population that is just not going to get the vaccine. And I think the question that remains is how big is that percentage? Are we talking about a ten percent problem, in which case then then we're less worried, or are we talking about a thirty-five to forty percent problem, in which case we're much more concerned? Lonnie Chen, director of domestic policy studies, Stanford's Hoover Institution. Thanks. Coming up after this short break, one state has found a way to help businesses get back to normal while keeping workers and customers on the safer side. Illinois' latest reopening plan seems to help businesses. Customers who show proof of vaccination or a recent negative test will not count against capacity limits at restaurants and gyms. Good idea, bad idea. Ali Marotti is a restaurants and retail reporter at Crane's Chicago Business, and she was with WBBM's Cisco Cotto. First of all, the biggest caveat with this is whether or not the city will follow suit, because right now it's just Governor Pritzker that has said this can happen throughout the state. We don't know what the city of Chicago will do. But if they are allowed to do it, you know, I talked to some restaurant operators in the area and they say it could be a big help, but implementing it could potentially be a logistical nightmare. Yeah, I mean, how would they do this? They'd have to check people's vaccination papers at the door. I mean, what, what would it look like? Right. So there's a lot of question about that. One restaurant operator I talked to said that they could potentially use the reservation system because they're able to use that, you know, to do a lot of things like know about allergies or food sensitivities or birthday parties and events. Um, But she also said that she'd probably have to designate somebody to check. And that is hard for a lot of restaurants right now because if operating it reduced capacity, they're also operating with reduced staff. So they may not have the manpower to have somebody monitor that. Additionally, there's concerns that there's no universal vaccine passport being distributed in the United States yet. So some worry about patrons fabricating vaccine records. Um, There's also this question of how the city or state would police it, you know, because now they can go in and check capacity limits. But how would you do that if some patrons were fully vaccinated and some weren't? So there are just a lot of questions circulating around this. Alpana Singh from uh, Tara and Vine in Evanston also was worried kind of about the HIPAA 
issues here. And she just felt that, you know, she was in no position to look at somebody's medical records in order to give them meatballs, essentially. So <laughs> kind, kind of funny, but also, yeah, I mean, it's a slippery slope and there are a lot of questions circulating around it. And in the end, it's all about restaurants wanting to be able to get back to business and stay alive. And so it, it seems like if you're a restaurant owner, you're, you're kind of willing to navigate whatever you have to in order to get customers back in the door. Yeah, that's true. The restaurants have become experts, you know, at navigating these quickly changing regulations and everything. And the one restaurant I talked to said that it would be worth a logistical hassle because they've been closed for indoor diners since December. They're getting ready to open again in April. And, you know, she told me that even just a handful of additional customers every night being inside would be really helpful to their bottom line. You know, others, however, they said that the way that the vaccine rollout's going, the way that the increased capacity is going, especially in the city, you know, they don't think that it would be worth implementing all of these new protocol just to eventually have a lot of this lifted, you know, once we get further along in the vaccine journey. So it just kind of depends on the restaurant. It depends what their layout is. Again, the the state and the city regulations for restaurant capacity is different. The state is only mandating six feet of social distance. So if you're a restaurant outside the city, this wouldn't really impact you that much. So it's kind of these restaurants in the city that are all looking to Mayor Lori Lightfoot to see if she's going to follow the state in implementing this rule. It'll be fascinating to watch, as it has been for a while. Thanks so much. That's Ali Moradi. Stores trying to survive in the pandemic have made lots of changes. The shopping experience is much different than it used to be. When things get back to normal, what changes are going to stick? KYW's Matt Leon talks to Sherry Lambert, assistant professor of marketing at Temple University. According, I think it was McKinsey, uh, more than 60% of consumers adopted a new behavior. And they plan to stick with that new behavior even after the pandemic. So one of the things that we've seen from a retail side of thing and from consumer behavior is that the digital experience has really been refined with regards to retail. Now, virtually every sector made the shift to digital from interior furnishings, tires, right, to sporting goods, to toys, hardware, and they're definitely impacted right? They're definitely impacted. And so what we're seeing is that digital channels will likely continue to grow and continue though to expand beyond 2021 and so on. To that point that the pandemic changed everything, are you starting, are you anticipating and are you already starting to see companies in their marketing and their advertising position themselves for life after the pandemic? Oh my gosh, yes. So if you recall from the start of it, there was this sense of community that people were marketing and they were saying things like stay home, be safe, right? Now we're seeing messaging that says we're back, we're open, we're excited to see you, right? So we definitely see this this companies that are marketing themselves with this sense of community and they're also really trying to wrap their arms around how they're going to communicate that they can accelerate delivery to meet the needs of the rising consumers' expectations. So you'll even hear companies, so Adidas is one example. Adidas is a sportswear company. They do more than just tennis shoes, obviously. They have decided that they're going to do a massive major shift to DTC, 
direct to consumer, right? So instead of just retail brick and mortar, they're going to do that as part of their plans. And they're marketing themselves to that. You know, in 2019, I think DTC was uh, 30% according to Retail Dive about Adidas, 40% in 2020, they're saying 50% of their sales is going to be direct to consumer. So they are marketing themselves and they're positioning themselves for that now. I'm very interested. Uh, focus of a lot of commercials, a lot of advertising, a lot of marketing over the last year, I would say after like the first month or two was keeping you safe. We have enhanced mm-hmm. uh, cleaning protocols. Uh, hand sanitizer available, obviously, masks required, stuff like that. When do we stop seeing that being a focus point? Do you think we're already kind of there? And do you think, or do you think we might see that linger in some sectors well beyond this because uh, it just gives people an extra layer of comfort? I think it's a, a, it's a, Good question. I think that we're seeing that it's the cost of entry, right? You just have to have it. And as consumers, we're expecting individual stores, store owners, retail establishments, even big box retailers just to have it. And they expect us to wear masks. But we're going to also see things that if you peel back the layers, that if you really look at what's happening when you're in the actual physical store, you're going to see that the store has done some things for the safety of the consumers, right? So we're going to see actual shopping not going away. While while I just mentioned direct-to-consumers on the rise and that e-commerce is going to continue, but individuals will continue to want to go to the stores, right? I just was at the mall last week. It looked like pre-pandemic days, right? I couldn't find a parking spot. There was tons of people just kind of walking around. I had no need to go to the mall because people want that immersive experience. And I think we're all, not that we're done with it, but we're tired of being home. We want people. We want to be around the public, right? So we're going to see a combination of omni-channel, as we call it in the industry, omni-channel, like an experience or a hybrid model of shopping in the store and also on via e-commerce, that's safety in itself, right? So we're going to see um, stuff that are in terms of contactless purchases. Stores may serve as a destination for consumers to touch and fill products, right? But then they might order them online, right? Again, the physical space becomes a fulfillment center of sorts, Right. And we're we're seeing that being so much so that maybe we'll have less packed malls, less packed people because it's a safety concern. Also, what we're going to see stores doing besides having the you know, I think the hand sanitizers are going to be there to your original question, but we're going to have more concierge services. And that used to be termed as like something for the highbrow premium brands. You know, it was the high end. But I think we're going to see that with the rise of social distancing, we're still going to look at, you know, being that six feet apart. Concierge is going to turn into more that curbside pickup for businesses, big and small. So, you know, we call that um, the BOPIS, right? Buy online, pick up in the store at the curb. A new study offers hope if you're worried about the COVID variant. 
a co-author from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, says no single variant of the virus can escape all of the antibodies made by the human immune system. The scientists studied three sets of antibodies, finding that variants can escape two of the sets, but none has been found that can avoid all three. Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Find us there. Stay well. 